Good morning, everyone. Good morning. You can open up your Bible today to Mark chapter 12. We're going to have a great time together in what I think is an amazing uh, portion of Scripture. But I guess every portion of Scripture that I get to teach each week I feel is amazing. So this is just another one of them. I wanted to make one more mention of something, which is that in our cafe area, if you're able to make it past the donut table... um, There are some Bibles on the bookcase there. We want to let you know that if you don't have your own Bible, please grab one of those and it's yours. Take it, read it, enjoy it. Um, If you make it a little beyond that, there's also some great Christian books there that uh, our pastors have sort of curated that we really enjoy. They're some of our favorites and those are for you to take uh, for free. Uh, You can read them, then give them away, read them, bring them back, read them and keep them, whatever you want to do with them, they're yours for the keeping. Um, So head over there in the cafe, grab coffee, donuts, hang out, read a book, whatever you want to do, we want you to use that space. So, um, but look, there's no greater book than the Bible, and that's what we get to open today and hear from. So with your Bible open now to Mark chapter 12. I'm going to read the entire portion of Scripture we're looking at today. We're going to start in verse 13 and make our way all the way to verse 27. And so um, let's read, then I'll pray, and we'll get right into it, okay? All right, let's read. It says, Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves the wife, but leaves no child, The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Sad story. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are 
the way, the truth, and the life. And today we want to come to you and you alone because you, you give us all things. And Lord, you know all things. And God, we ask that today you would know our hearts. You would know where they're at. God, that you would see that there would be life there. And um, Lord, that we would honor you in all things. And so Jesus, I pray as I open up my mouth to speak, Lord, I pray it would be your very living word that would penetrate into our hearts this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the heat is rising up for Jesus, right? He is in the final week of his life on earth. The cross is coming on Friday, and right now it's the middle of the week, and Jesus is getting confronted left and right by the religious and the political leaders of his day, and I mean like all of them. We saw in our text that the Pharisees come to him, as well as the Herodians and the Sadducees, and they come to him with these questions and scenarios. And their whole purpose of coming to Jesus was so that they could trap him in something that he's going to say or do. But isn't this going to be a little bit difficult for them? Here they are coming to Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, trying to find some fault in him, which is impossible because he is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, and Jesus is perfect. And so prior to all these various traps that these people are setting for Jesus, what was Jesus just doing? He went to the temple right after his triumphal entry, and in the temple, he saw what they had turned it into, and he cleansed it, and the religious leaders began to question Jesus, by what authority was he doing those things by? You recall that Jesus didn't tell them by what authority he did them. Uh, Instead, he later told a parable, the parable of the vineyard that we saw last week, which was basically to say, if you're not going to honor the son, if you're not going to respect the son, then why would he tell you? And see, they had already made up their minds, the religious leaders, about what they wanted to do with Jesus. They wanted to remove him from the picture. They had no intentions and no plans to believe who he said he was. And so they want to destroy him. And they're going to do that, right, by crucifixion coming on Friday. And, and the irony of it all is that it was by the cross that Jesus actually displayed his authority. In John, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. I have the power to lay down my life, and I have the authority to raise it up. Jesus would, by the cross, show his ultimate authority. And although Jesus is going to have his blood shed in murder, it would be by that very blood that humanity would be able to be healed of every kind of sin. And so Jesus, right now in this whole scene, he is firm and he is resolute, knowing what he had come to do, even knowing that his accusers want to kill him, and he's still going to listen to their questions. So look at verse 13. And they said to him, or the, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to try to trap him in his talk. And so entire political and religious leaders were banding together against Jesus. And They'd seen, right, the three years of Jesus' ministry, and they'd seen the magnetic pull that Jesus had upon the people. 
especially the common people. They were coming to Jesus, like I said, like a magnet, because he was their teacher, he was their healer, he was called the friend of sinners. And so people are coming to Jesus in droves, and yet there are others who are opposing Jesus, kind of like the backside of a magnet. And you have these Pharisees and Herodians, which Jesus has already had a number of run-ins with them, and here they come to Jesus together to try to trap him. But what's interesting is that these are two very different groups of people. You know, the Pharisees, which we know quite a bit about, they were, uh, they were a separatist movement, which simply means that they didn't associate with anyone besides themselves. They walked through the markets holding their robes in close and tight to themselves so as not to touch any other person that wasn't like them. They held to a strict rule of life and religion, and the Pharisees actually started out very well. They were something like a back-to-the-Bible movement in that day, and yet their way had gone astray, and they began to love their traditions and their rule-keeping more than God himself. And then you had the Herodians, and they were sympathizers of Rome. They were supporters of Herod and his political leadership. And because of that, many of the Jews really didn't like them. They considered them as traitors, those who loved government and politics more than God himself. And now, as you can imagine, the Pharisees and the Herodians, being these two very different groups of people, wouldn't have liked each other very much. And they didn't. They were considered enemies at that time. However, they found in Jesus a common enemy. And their hatred towards Jesus drove them to band together in order to come against him. In fact, Luke tells us that they came together like allied spies. And when they approached Jesus, they pretended to be righteous people with honest questions, but really, Jesus was able to see past it all, that they were adversaries with this common target on the Son of God. And, you know, there is a lot of differences in our world. There's a lot of hatred in our world. And you know when a hatred runs deep, when people are able to set aside differences in order to come together for a common hatred. Like that's a deep kind of hatred. But how much better would it be, right, if we were able to lay aside our differences, especially our hatred, and if we were able to come together in a common love for Jesus, See, that's a game changer, but the Pharisees and the Herodians were unwilling to come to Jesus in that way. Instead, their hearts were against him. But that's not how they first approached him. They, in verse 14, we see that the Pharisees and the Herodians, they come to Jesus, but they, they started out pretending to really love Jesus in his ministry. They said, right, verse 14, and they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. You know, in today's terms, we call this sucking up. Or I like to call it buttering somebody up. They're getting Jesus ready because they're about to lay this question on them, on him, and they want him to answer, but they're, they're trying to come at it, you know, with this nice tone of, oh, we really like you, teacher. But there are underlying intentions 
where they want to malign Jesus. They want to destroy him. And, and it's interesting because these statements that they gave about Jesus, are they not all true? I mean, that's the dangerous thing, I guess, right? Which is that you can know a lot of truths about Jesus. And you can say all the right things about Jesus. But if you don't actually have a heart of love and honor for Jesus, then, then your words are nothing more than affirmations. And the demons affirm truth about Jesus and they tremble. And the Pharisees and the Herodians right here were affirming real truths about Jesus, but their hearts were far from him. And friends, listen, we can honor Jesus all day long with our lips. But where are our hearts? Because look briefly at verse 15 before we actually consider the question they had for Jesus. It said, but knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus could look right past those smooth words. And it's true, Jesus doesn't care about anyone's opinion. He didn't care about their opinion, and guess what? He doesn't care about ours either. <laughs> Jesus cares about truth. Jesus also is not swayed by appearances. And I love the original language uh, of that phrase. It actually has a much fuller idea. To not be swayed by appearances means that he does not look at people's faces. You know, you can put on whatever face you want. You could wear whatever mask you want to wear. And you know, my son has been really into masks lately. He's got a ninja mask. Um, we went to downtown LA and he got a luchador mask. We wrestle on the bed all day long. It's crazy. Like 6.30 in the morning, gotcha! And he's like wearing his luchador mask already. Um, yesterday he got a dinosaur mask and he literally walked into church today with a dinosaur mask on. But I, I can look at my son, and I can see right past those masks, and I know who he is. In the same way, whatever face you're trying to put on, whatever mask you're trying to wear before Jesus, he's able to look right past it and really see his son or his daughter. And... and when he looks at us, he's looking into our hearts. He's looking to see whether or not we have been transformed by his way. When Jesus looked into the hearts of these Pharisees and Herodians, their hearts were not matching their words. And when your heart does not match up with your words, do you know what that's called? It's called hypocrisy. And that's what Jesus saw in them. And I pray that as Jesus looks into my heart, and as he looks into your heart, that that is not what he would find. He would not see hypocrisy, but he would see real transformation because of the way of God. And so now we come to this question that they ask, right? In order to trap Jesus in his talk, second part of verse 14, this is the question. Is it lawful? to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And the reason why they were asking this question is because they knew that however it was that Jesus would answer, he would make himself an enemy of at least someone. 
right? If he said, pay your taxes to Caesar, then the Jews would have said, well, Jesus, you're just a supporter of the Roman government, and they are oppressing Israel. They are, uh, they are lording over the Jewish people, and, and you're giving power away to Rome. You're not supportive of the people of God. You support Rome. But if he said, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, then all that they would have to do is head over to the Roman government, find Pontius Pilate and say, we found somebody here who does not support Rome. He is a rebel. You should arrest him. He is denying the Roman government. And so either way that Jesus was going to answer, he was going to have someone against him. It was a lose-lose situation. And don't you guys find that in our world today, that there are many kinds of traps like this. And I plead for the wisdom of God, for the people of God, to be able to answer well when the world wants to put us in these kinds of traps, where what we say, we're going to make ourselves an enemy of at least someone. But Jesus was able to answer so well. What does he do? Well, he does what somebody would do if they were wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. And that is what Jesus is, and that's what he tells his followers to be. He, he tells us, right, to, to have the wisdom as is the serpent, that we might be cunning and crafty even in our thinking and in our answers, but then in our innocence and in our purity, we would be like a dove. And that is how Jesus gave this answer, and they were marveling at the answer that he gave. Look at verse 15 through 16. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Isn't it just such a good answer that Jesus gives here? You know, and I don't want to do too much in the way of dissecting these verses, but what I want to do this morning, talking about this, is I want to draw upon the principle that we see here of that as we as Christians have dual citizenship, that we are citizens of both heaven and of earth. And so Jesus asked them after they gave him this question, he said, Bring me one of those coins. Bring me a denarius. And it was a coin that looked something similar to the coins we have today. On one side, you had the image of Caesar. And on the other side, you had a, a, an abbreviated inscription that would have read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And there Jesus is holding the coin in his hand. And that denarius was a Roman coin. It was what you would use to buy and sell. It was the currency of that time that was used uh, in the marketplace. And it was the same currency that was used to pay taxes to the governing authority of that land, which at the time was Rome. And look, Jesus doesn't say anything here about whether the tax rates were fair or just. He simply said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Meaning that if you want to live where you live, whatever place on earth that you are a citizen of, then you have to render to the governing authority of that land where you live what is due. 
If you don't like the government, which you don't have to agree with everything that your government says. However, if you want to live in that land and enjoy the benefits that come with living as a citizen in that land, then you must render to that government what belongs to that government, which in this case is taxes. Perhaps this kingdom ethic of the way of Jesus is coming of something as a surprise or a challenge to you. You know, and look, I understand that in this world, there are places upon this earth where there are governments that are unjust and unfair when it comes to how they tax their people. But again, Jesus doesn't say anything of amounts here. He simply said, render. In fact, I believe that it's because of this teaching in Mark chapter 12 and other places in Scripture that it would be a sin for a follower of Jesus not to pay taxes or to cheat on their taxes. I like what my pastor would say when teaching on this subject. He would say, find out what tax you have to pay and then pay it. Pay what is due, no more and no less. Use whatever proper and real tax write-offs you can get and pay less, sure, but pay what is due. And then he would say, if you pay more than what is due, well, then that's just stupid. <laughs> right? Amen. Amen. Therefore, according to Mark chapter 12, verse 14, and as I said, several other places in Scripture, to lie or to cheat or to not pay your taxes at all would be an error for a Christian. Amen? So Jesus then, because we're not finished there, <laughs> we're not finished there, Jesus in the same breath masterfully explains that we also have another responsibility, that we are to render to the governing authority what is due to the governing authority, but we are also to render to God the things that are God's. And yes, we have a citizenship on earth, wherever it is that you might live, and we also have a citizenship in heaven. And there are times in the Christian life where your citizenship in heaven takes precedence over your citizenship on earth. Many of you probably know the time when Peter was challenged by the religious leaders in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. They told him not to speak the name of Jesus anymore. And Jesus said to them, we must obey God rather than man. Because just as a coin has an image and inscription on it, we as human beings bear the image of our creator. God made us in his image, and this applies to all people, that all people should render to God the things that belong to him. And so if Rome made the denarius, then give Rome the denarius. But if God made you, then you should give him what is due. And what is due? Your life, your love, your loyalty, your body, all things that God created in you are to be rendered to him. And listen, people who do not render to God their lives in the same way, if you don't render your taxes to Caesar, those who do not render their lives 
are lying and cheating with their lives. You know? And the principle is simple. If the governing authority says to render something that God has said not to render, then God is the one who comes first. God is the one whom we obey first before any human, whether that be your family or your employer or your government or so on. God made you and he made you in his image and so you're to render to God first. You are far more value than a coin. You are a life. And with your life, that is what is required. God purchased you at a price. With his own very blood upon the cross, therefore glorify him above all. Now, as I've been saying all these words about paying taxes and rendering your life to God, I can look out and I can see your faces. Right? Seems like you're all agreeing with me. Maybe, maybe not. But I'm simply doing what Jesus did. Remember that Jesus does not care about people's opinions. And Jesus was not swayed by anyone's appearance. When he looked at faces, he probably saw some sour faces as he talked about this. He probably also saw some glad faces, but Jesus was not swayed by people's faces. Jesus taught the way of God when it came to social, political, religious, economic, any kind of ethics, Jesus taught the way of God. And I want to be a teacher of the way of God. I want to take his words and declare them to you. And I'm a man, and I'm often swayed by opinions. I'm often swayed by the appearance of people's faces. I want to be liked. Don't you? But we are not called just to simply be liked. We are called to declare the word of God, yes, in truth and love, certainly. But we are to declare his truth. And I hope that hearing these truths from scripture, you would find yourselves marveling at the words of Jesus. Now, let's look briefly at the next trap that was set by the Sadducees at this point. The Sadducees were a whole nother group of people whole different category. And they differed from the Pharisees in that they didn't believe that there was a resurrection, which is really funny, you know, because they have a question that has to do with the resurrection. And the Sadducees were well-educated people. They were part of the wealthy class of the religious Jews. They were the best and the brightest of their day. They, but they'd come to this point where they dismissed anything spiritual, and focused only upon the physical. The, the Sadducees denied, as it says in the text, that there is a resurrection. They denied heaven and hell. They didn't believe in angels or demons or spirits. Instead, they accepted only the first five books in your Bible called the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, or the Torah, and that's what they used, and that's what they studied. They knew it quite well, and yet, as they read it, they were missing a lot. Verse 18 to 22, it says, And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. 
And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So you've got right this overly hypothetical situation presented to Jesus. It, it's, it's almost like they are mocking him with this question, right? They, a lot of times people try to ask these questions to Bible-believing Christians like, you know, did Adam have a belly button? Or could God make a burrito so big that he couldn't eat it? And I don't know, that's a good question. Um, Right, we come to God with a lot of these, maybe not we, but people do come to God with a lot of nonsense questions. I think this one definitely falls in that category of it's, it's it, for one thing, it's not even something that would likely happen in real life, right? Often people try to trap God with questions that don't actually even happen in reality. See, God is happy to answer your questions. Come to God with all of your questions. Bring the real you to the real Jesus. But at the very least, let your questions be honest questions. A lot of times people come to God with dishonest questions because right, they've already made up in their minds that they're not going to believe in Jesus. So they come up with these grand and wild scenarios that don't actually happen in reality because they've already dismissed the Son of God. And that's what we see the Sadducees doing here. They don't really want the question answered about the resurrection, but Jesus is going to tell them. He is going to tell them about the resurrection. And so the situation is this. There's a woman, right, who had a husband and died before giving her any offspring. And in that culture and time, if a woman died as a widow and childless, there was pretty much very little hope for her to thrive at life. And in Deuteronomy, God gave a certain law to make sure that widows would be taken care of. And there was something called the leveret marriage. And we see this played out in the book of Ruth, if you've read that story. But this woman was just down on her luck. Her kinsman redeemer came along and married her, but gave no child and then died. And then one after another, seven times this happened. And she was widowed seven times and childless each time until finally she dies alone without husband and without child. Verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. You know, the Sadducees are standing there, they've got these little smirks on their face because they think they've got Jesus trapped with their, with their dishonest and unrealistic scenario in question. And, and I love Jesus answers them. He actually had the grace to even answer them, and he's going to teach them about what they've been rejecting all this time, which is the resurrection. Look at verse 24 to 27. And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
you are quite wrong. Isn't that amazing that Jesus begins and ends his answer by telling them that they are wrong? You know, we don't like being told that we're wrong. But the real Jesus has no problem telling you that you're wrong. He is the truth. And if what you believe does not line up with who he is and what he teaches, well, then you are wrong. And the Sadducees were wrong when it came to their understanding of the resurrection and anything having to do with the spiritual realm. As I told you, the the Sadducees dismissed anything spiritual or supernatural as they read their Bible, those first five books. They lived really pious lives. They knew the scriptures quite well, and yet they considered themselves religious experts of the Bible, but they were bound only to the natural because they couldn't wrap their minds around anything spiritual. You know, if they couldn't wrap their mind around it, then it must not be true. How many people live like that today? That if you can't wrap your mind around it, it must not be true. God is far beyond your mind, friends. And what is true definitely goes far, far, far beyond the natural. Verse 25 is this really interesting verse, right, that kind of catches some people off guard. It's like, well, what's Jesus saying there about, well, there's no marriage in heaven and we'll be like angels. And, you know, he's, for one, he didn't say we will become angels in heaven. Let's clear that up. He said we will be like angels in heaven. And so what are angels like? Well, angels are eternal, and in heaven we will be eternal. Angels spend their time worshiping God, and so in heaven we will spend our time worshiping God. Angels do not marry and do not procreate, and when we get to heaven, we will not marry and we will not procreate. And more can be said about all this, and you know, I don't have all the answers because we're talking about heaven, something that right now, you know, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. And what will be there, we do not fully know yet now. But what we do know just from the words of Jesus is that heaven is not just enhanced earth. Like if you think heaven is just enhanced earth, it is beyond that and it is more than that. But one thing for sure of heaven is that there will be no sin and we will be forever in the presence of God eternally worshiping our creator. Amen? Amen. And, you know, more can be said about this. And sometimes people struggle with this, right? Because a lot of people love their marriage. Amen, if you love your marriage? Yeah? You love your children? You love, you love that, the benefits and the joys that come of being married. And so to think of heaven as not having marriage, you're like, whoa, that's something that I have a lot of, uh, of love and joy and fulfillment from. But I'll just tell you, The love and the joy and the fulfillment that you've experienced in this life, either through marriage or through having kids, there's going to be a love and a joy and a fulfillment that you have yet to even know. So when you get to heaven, yeah, there will be no marriage, but oof, there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're the bride of Christ, connecting to our groom, Jesus. Marriage now is actually just simply a picture of the fullness of what is to come. And so, in verse 26, 
Jesus really gets to the point. I don't think that's really the point. I think verse 26 is really the point, which is he's challenging them on their understanding of Scripture. He said, quoting to them Exodus 3.6, which they accepted, as in the first five books, when Moses was at the bush, he's like, didn't God say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And what's amazing, I think it was like 400 years after Jacob had died that those words were spoken, meaning that God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, meaning Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were with God in heaven as he spoke those words, which tells us something really powerful, which is that simply how one word was and is, one word can change the meaning of a whole verse. So it's important that we hold fast to the word of God. Verse 27, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, as we bring all of this to an end this morning, we've looked at the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, and they were wrong that day. They were wrong in their thinking, They were wrong in their motives. They were wrong with even the questions that they asked. And ultimately, what they were wrong about was they were wrong about Jesus. They didn't see him as a friend, but they saw him as an enemy. He was the spotless son of God, and they were trying to trap him in his talk because they'd already made up their minds about Jesus. They'd already rejected him, and And yet Jesus still graciously answers them. Isn't that amazing? That he's even having a conversation with them. He doesn't have to, but he does. And he doesn't hold back either. He tells them the truth. And the beauty of the words of Jesus is that they remain. Because we serve a living God, his words are living. And today, as his words have been spoken, they've been spoken right to you. And God is not saying, I was God. He's saying, I am God. He's asking, am I your God? I was Abraham's God. I was Isaac's God and Jacob's God, but am I your God? Are you going to be a friend of Jesus? I think the way that we can really bring this home into our hearts is in verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And I take it we all know a lot of things. I know that there's some people in this room that you know some stuff that's just like, wow. Like, some of you guys have jobs, you can't even tell me what you do. And if you told me what you do and what you know, you'd have to kill me. (laughs) Right? I think it's true. And, And if we come together... With all the things that we know in this room, there are lawyers and doctors and engineers, mechanics, artists, designers, teachers, restaurant workers. I don't know what you do. You do a lot of stuff. And you know a lot of stuff. And if we were just to take the glorious level of the accumulated knowledge just in this room alone, man, that would just show the glory of mankind. But... Do you know the scriptures and do you know the power of God? When we come to the resurrection and stand before God, he isn't going to ask you if you know how to use Photoshop. 
right? Or if you pass the bar. Or if you can build a rocket to take people to another planet. All that's wonderful. I'm not dissing on any of that. Know those things and use them to glorify God with. But when you stand before an all-knowing God, your creator, who you were made in his image and you have his inscription, when you come to the resurrection, what will God want to know? You will want to know, do you know the scriptures and do you know the power of God? Because the scriptures point to Jesus. All the scriptures point to Christ. And it is through Jesus that we can have life that is eternal. And look, it's not enough to just know the scriptures because the religious leaders knew the scriptures quite well. They had quite a working knowledge. You probably know scriptures better than a lot of people in this room. And yet they searched the scriptures for in them they think they found eternal life, but they were all testifying about Jesus. In Jesus, there is eternal life. So you can know a lot of scripture, but do you know whom the scriptures point to, which is Jesus? And that is why we also need to know the power of God, because you need the scriptures and the power of God to truly have a thriving relationship with Christ. And the power of God is supplied by the spirit of God so that you can live out the word of God. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they they didn't have the power of God because the power can only come through Christ, by the power of his spirit. And so don't leave here today without knowing that power. If you don't have that power, you're you're struggling to live out the words of Christ, then receive the power that comes from the Holy Spirit. And we have pastors and leaders and a prayer team who are gonna be up here who would love to lay hands upon you and pray for the power of God to come upon you so that you can be an effective witness of Jesus Christ in this world, that you would take what you know of the scriptures and live them out with his power. And so to know the word of God and to know the power of God is to be a victorious child of God. And so today you've heard it. You've heard the questions and you've heard the wisdom of Jesus. You've heard what Jesus is looking for. He's looking past the mask. He's looking past your face. He's looking into your heart and he's wondering, do you know the way of God? Do you know the scriptures and do you know the power of God? And are you rendering to God the things that are God's, which is all that you are? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. God, I pray that as we come now to worship our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer, our friend Jesus, God, that we would stand in awe, that we would marvel at your word and your power today. God, whatever way in which we've come here with a face or a mask, Lord, I pray you would expose our hearts, your, your word's able to cut to pierce, to get out really where we're at, Lord. God, I thank you for my friends here, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that you are drawing them in by your kindness and your love. Pray you do a great work among us in this time of worship, because this right here, this worship, this is what we're doing for the rest of eternity. Teaching is, is going away because we will be face to face, but worship isn't going away. So Lord, let these not just be songs that go across our lips, but words that would impact our hearts and spirits that would surrender to our 
majestic King Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.